Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Hey, 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 this is NFL Hall of Famer Ray Lewis. I'm excited to announce the launch of my new podcast, Everyday Greatness, the Ray Lewis Podcast. I'll be talking with friends, family members, old teammates, athletes, celebrities, moguls, and guess what? I'll be talking to you. Listen, this is all in the search for everyday greatness. So I'm asking you to come along with me on this ride. Download new episodes of Everyday Greatness, the Ray Lewis podcast, every Friday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on PodcastOne.com. It's not what you have. It's what's inside of you that actually inspires greatness. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I've been excited about this for a little while after we lined it up. My guest is Ben Taylor of Thinking Basketball, basketball analyst and historian, and we go in-depth on The Last Dance. We talk about some of the important takeaways from the 10-part documentary, some of the omissions that we both thought were most significant, whether the Bulls could have run it back and competed for the 1999 NBA championship, and a lot more. It was a, a really great conversation, runs well over an hour, and touches on a lot of really interesting things. And we, we it is a conversation. We go back and forth. He asked me things because we came at this from such different perspectives, and I actually learned more about his perspective a lot from this conversation as well. So hope you really enjoy it. Uh, it's brought to you by Bet Online. Use the Podcast One promo code for a sign-up bonus and to let them know that you came from us. And really love this conversation. I think you will too. Thank you so much for coming on. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for thinking of me and reaching out and, you know, wanting to chat basketball. Absolutely. And I mean, the last dance was touched a very different note for me than for you and for Nate. Nate and I did a pod on this for Dunked On that came out on Sunday night because I'm familiar with a lot of this. I mean, if you cover the league for 10 years as I have and, and just being around basketball, you get some of this context. But it was I, I kind of came at it from a different perspective, and that's part of why I wanted to talk to you is because yours is more felt by everyone, and you're a great historian as well. So I think the the place to to start is just we'll do we'll start general and kind of like your overall take. And like I said, my, my kind of big takeaway was that I'm happy that it exists, even though I don't know how much of it is going to be canon like for younger generations or anything else or for people like me. And I don't know if that's how you feel as well. Yeah, I, I think that's a decent summary. I mean, it's incredibly nostalgic, right? Just so the idea of being able to go back and relive through that, the, I'm, I'm a nostalgic person anyway, like the NBA on NBC theme song gets me riled up. Yeah, um, I was sad that wasn't in the doc at all. Like a full, yeah. like a full, like they could have put in one of the full Costas intros for a finals game, but then gone into Round Ball Rock and it, everybody like into a commercial, and everyone would have gone insane. Like, yeah, for, no, I'm sure, I'm sure that we're just you know speaking in legalese here at this point, which you know maybe you could explain why they can't ever get that to run, um, but that would have been amazing. I mean, it, so some of that's probably a licensing issue because that you have to get permission from the license holder to use it, and NBC is still currently using that song. But 
I think it would have looked really good on them. And if NBC ever wants to get back into the pro basketball game, I think that having that remembering like, oh, remember when they did a good job would be useful. Yeah. So the nostalgia was incredible. Um, I think it is nice to have, I mean, the production quality is really high. So to have that kind of, you know, essentially 10 hours, there were other things done way back in the day. You know, there's an IMAX film where they borrowed some of the footage from the 98 season that was called Michael Jordan to the Max, and that chronicled some of the 98 playoff run. I think it was actually narrated by Lawrence Fishburne. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, you know, this stuff like this has existed, but in 2020 to be able to go back and relive all that stuff, the nostalgia and the entertainment were off the charts. And have some of it on high-quality footage. Yeah. No, the footage was fantastic, and and some of that as a historian is great because – we're kind of at the mercy of the public domain and for the filmmakers to be able to go back and probably get, you know, firsthand, whether it's from the production company themselves or the NBA stock footage, and then put the highest of quality footage that we have available in the film. That was really cool to see as well. So all those things were awesome. But then the narrative components, because, you know, it's really told from only one side of the story and heavily edited those were some of the things that every once in a while had to pause and be like now wait a second (laughs) that's not you're leaving out this kind of important thing yeah and there were a a number of different elements of that like you think about it being a michael jordan centric retrospective on his time with the bulls but also that including like his relationship with his father but not his relationship like i was actually more shocked that his kids were in it for a minute than that they, you know, like <laughs> that, that was to me like the most shock is like, Oh, okay. You're going to tell that story. Nope. You're just going to have them as like background color for a very short specific scene where you don't get into some of the other stuff that's involved in why they weren't potentially why they weren't there. And that was, that was really stunning to me. It's like, Oh, they did talk to them and then didn't use any of it other than one minute or so. He's always had an element of privacy, even going back to when he was enormous. And so, uh, of course, for this, I think it was J.E. Skeets who talked about it. They didn't use his house in Jupiter, Florida, but they used three different houses that were one of them was kind of comparable and they needed to do three interview sessions. And so they were renting these spaces to do the interview sessions. And the simple reason he's he just didn't want a camera in his house. Yeah, period. So I get that. You know, I I get some of the sort of more basketball-centric narratives. The one that I actually thought they would circle back to but never did was his relationship with his older brother, mm-hmm. who who I guess, you know, growing up, we were always told he famously sort of they would go at each other. They alluded to it very briefly at the beginning, but there wasn't exactly a lot of interview footage about that or specific anecdotes or how that kind of plugged into his game in any way, right? I mean, it's just interesting to think about this kid who's 6'1 or 6'2, probably a little shorter in the preceding years, and then he has this growth spurt, and that sort of catapults him forward as an athlete and as a player. And I would have loved a little bit more color and sort of filling in the lines on exactly how that played out, because growing up, I always heard you know he was massively influenced by his brother when he played him. Yeah, absolutely, and that those were formative experiences for not only his competitive drive, but getting his skill set up. And you've heard, you hear that sometimes in, in other sibling relationships. And another part of the Jordan-centric style of this is that I thought it sometimes minimized, sometimes completely ignored contributions of people who were outside of Jordan, or who were outside of like 
Jordan Pippen, Rodman, Jackson. And that was Tony Kukoc at times. Ron Harper was in the documentary more as a former Cavalier than as a former Bull. <laughs> yeah. Which is which was shocking to me. And a lot of times, so like some of the bigs were in the documentary, but they weren't in it really talking about their part in it or anything else. They were talking about Michael and like, you know, using Wennington and, and I think Wennington and Cartwright were both in it. Luke Longley doesn't, I don't recall him being in it at all. And Will Perdue was in it briefly. And that I thought was fascinating too, that it was, it, it wasn't really, like, I thought it was going to be an in-depth thing on the, like the 97, 98 team as a lens for it. But it only really told that story, other than maybe a few of the playoff series, in broad strokes. And and considering how fascinating that season was, I was I was surprised at how much meat was left on that specific bone when it seemed like that was the whole sales pitch. Yeah, that was my. So I talked about this on uh, my podcast, Thinking Basketball, with Jay Kyle Mann from The Ringer a couple weeks ago. He was shocked when it was about to air, and I wasn't jumping out of my seat. And I said, the only reason I'm not ostensibly excited about this is because I'm really questionable about how much extra footage has been laying around for 22 years. You know, a number of media people followed them during that season. David Halberstram has an incredible book about the late 90s Bulls called Playing for Keeps. Michael, uh, Phil Jackson's written about it. Uh, There was the IMAX film that I referenced. And so I'm a little skeptical that there's like 10 hours of really high quality, useful footage about a story that we don't know. And I think that in a way turned out to be true. Although my favorite thing was I'd seen it in writing, finally getting to see Jordan in his little office meeting room in the bowels of the United center before every game. I mean, that was, um, I want to ask you actually, because culturally for me, that brought me back to the mid nineties and just kind of understanding the intersection of basketball culture and a dominant personality and fame and even even the differences in how people sort of ribbed each other and the curse words that they would use and things like that. It brought me back in time. But what was that like for you to watch that? Because you, you know, as we've talked about, you weren't into basketball at that point. Was that like trippy or weird? What, what was kind of your take on the kind of social dynamic around that scene before games it was definitely different and i i think narrowing it to the social scene before games you know that what i was thinking you know the time with the security guards that there isn't necessarily a parallel where that was one player with all of those people you know you can see i mean i've covered the warriors they have they have security personnel sometimes the players have relationships steph curry with ralph is, is probably the most prominent but that was a very different thing. It was, And it wasn't like Jordan's entourage necessarily. It was just the people who were around him at that specific moment. And he did have a strong relationships. That was something The Last Dance went into pretty well. But it, it was you, – you're right about the, the, the wording and everything like that. And, and I, the way Jordan talked to Scott Burrell both in the practices but also before – I think that was game six where he basically said like you have to actually try today. And then the, <laughs> Nate, Nate tweeted out the like Burrell stat line where he was like negative 16 in 10 minutes and had like one point or something like that. And some of that filtered through because – you you would see some actually some of it filtered through to me through Kobe because I remember the way that Kobe was mm. talked about in in some of in some of the uh, 
more contemporaneous parts in the I lived in LA from 03 to 07 and so that was mostly the post Shaq years. And so th- those were some of the like Kobe the demanding teammate type of stuff, like the Smush Parker and a whole bunch of other things. So I picked up some of that from there, but it was it definitely was a uh, like a time capsule remembering how different not only the relationship between players but the like how the structure of the pregame has changed so much. Like, I mean, I know it a lot better now, but I, I recognize the differences. Yeah, so it was it was really fascinating. And I think that the other kind of along the lines of, like, things that felt really different was how, it, like, I mean, when they talked about Sam Smith and the Jordan rules and how, you know, it, it was so much more common than to see something told from a narrower perspective, whereas now partially because you have a lot of different voices in, in, in the room with social media and with smaller outlets getting getting credentialed and everything like that. But it just seems like there were a lot of like unturned leaves there, even though there was so much incentive to do so. So let's talk about that inner circle and the media. Did you notice one of the members of the entourage who was always in the room with Michael. Are we talking about Ahmad Rashad? That is exactly who I'm thinking of. So Ahmad Rashad had an enormous role in NBA NBA media. He worked for NBC for like two decades, but yeah, including some... it was was inside stuff on during the Jordan years. I remember I watched yes. it a little bit after, but that was probably yes, ex- post, you know. Exactly. So inside stuff didn't come online. I want to say inside stuff wasn't until like nineteen ninety or something. I mean it, it's squarely in the meat of the heart of Jordan's career and sort of the crescendoing of his narrative and the, and this you know enormous mythical figure that was built up over the, over those years and Ahmad Rashad ran NBA Inside stuff. It was an awesome show back then because we didn't have a million channels and we didn't have the internet and social media and streaming and all this and so you would wait until the weekend. Inside stuff would come out. There's a very famous Inside stuff clip that you can pull up on YouTube really quickly about him playing Shaq one-on-one when Shaq's really young and Shaq breaks the rim on his first play. And I mean, completely rips the rim off. Have you seen this? Uh, I think I have, yeah. Yeah, so Ahmad, like, he's definitely the sideline reporter for all the key games for the A-team. And, and he with, was a professional athlete himself. Like, we should we should know yes. that. He was he was on the Minnesota Vikings. Yes, so, uh, and, and married to... Um, uh, the woman who played Bill Cosby's wife on the Cosby show. Oh, that's as well. right. Yes. So uh, Felicity shot. So just an incredible kind of figure in this whole thing in the sense that he's a media member and he's reporting on all this and he's driving these things, but he's also literally in the entourage and the inner circle. I just, it cracked me up watching that. It also reminded me of the challenges of what I call access journalism. So the uh, it's not something that I do, and I respect the hell out of the people who do it well because it is incredibly hard. And really, at, to a, to a point, part of, they're trying to do two different things. They're trying to accurately tell a story and ideally in their world tell it as quickly as they can while also not burning the people who right. allow them to do so. And yeah. and, they're, and, and so with, with Ahmad Rashad, that comes up when the like, Oh, he gets an exclusive interview with Michael Jordan the first time Jordan's talked to the press for a while. It's like, oh, how did he get that interview? Oh, I know how he got that interview. And it's 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 not only the, the oh, he's close to him, but also the understanding that it will be done in a way, but mostly probably from the questions that were asked rather than some sort of edit to – to not to not get him in hot water and that is a challenging dance 
now, but you can imagine the way that that would be perceived if there was an equivalent now of somebody who was like traveling with, I guess it would be LeBron, but also was like a member of the media in the kind of more traditional sense. Yeah. I mean, that whole... That whole dance is probably a a separate podcast, but just really interesting, especially considering how kind of one-sided the documentary was. I mean, it's not intended, I think, to be an objective, analytical type of piece. It is a very narrative-driven, subjective, here's my perspective kind of piece, and that just fits into that same thing. Um, I want to, I don't think you know this. I don't think I've ever talked about this publicly, so I want to blow your mind maybe a little bit here. Even though I was not living in Chicago, did not grow up in Chicago, anything like that. My parents lived in Chicago briefly in the 70s. By the time Jordan came back in 1995 and then heading into the 1996 season, I was basically at a point where I just didn't want to miss any Bulls games, right? Mm -hmm. And so I went from growing up with, we didn't have cable TV, we just had local channels. If there was an important basketball game on I would make it a mission to get over to my grandmother's who had cable and watch the games. And then I heard about this DirecTV thing. DirecTV had NBA League Pass. So as a family, we kind of convinced my parents to get DirecTV, NBA League Pass. And what did we do? We watched like every single Chicago Bull game, Bulls game from 1996 to 1998. Wow. But I mean, that that's quite the set of teams to, to, to do that for, though. I think I think that that diligence paid off. It, it was It was just the kind of thing that you didn't, want to miss anything at the time and it, and, it was mean, also you started with the 72 and 10 team then it was the middle of that season that i think we finally got it to yeah. it was like hey hey it was like hey because they were on national tv a lot but it was like hey do you see how good this is we can't miss this and so it was i was seen i saw like 99 percent of bulls games from the middle of that season to june of 1998 and the other players on that team were a huge part of why that was such a good team. And I I think as you and Nate have talked about, that may be obvious in a historical sense in terms of names like Pippen and Rodman, but the construction of those teams was always really, really critical. I think Jerry Krause himself, as a team builder, adding role players, adding complementary pieces, adding guys that played a certain type of basketball, so specifically shooters around michael that was something they were missing well and, the... and shooters that weren't ball dominant like this is something right. that comes up a lot now like there there are guys who who can shoot who want the ball more who who need it more or have too much that they take away and kraus from what i can tell did a very good job of threading that needle of players that added enough to the table despite a limited skill set and didn't take too much away yeah, so the other one that was big for that second three-peat team was Tony Kukoc and his versatility. Oh, oh, you and, mean oh, you mean the guy that they played in the Dream Team and never and never appeared again in the documentary? Yes, yes, that's exactly that's exactly who I'm referring to. Um, so they would play lineups with him at center quite a bit. Where even though it's the mid '90s, you essentially have a stretch center, but he was more versatile than that as an offensive player. I talked about this. Um, recently on a podcast that's all about the greatest six men of all time and just how he kind of combined a little post game outside shooting. So you get that stretch element, but he also was very skilled as a passer. He was a very skilled ball handler for his size. And so adding that another sort of counterbalance on the court as an offensive player, I mean, this was just all consistent with the team building that you use the term threading the needle. 
I think that's what happened. Randy Brown, who doesn't appear in the documentary basically at all, he was a guy who could come off the bench for 10 or 15 minutes a game and just the guy to think of is Avery Bradley. Just absolutely get in your grill as a ball handler, one of the best on-ball kind of small guard defenders I've probably ever seen. And the reason they wanted a player like that is because otherwise the Bulls were vulnerable to quick guards. So they started, they loved starting these big guard lineups where you had Jordan, Pippen, and Harper. And depending on who you played, you tried to put one of those guys on the quickest or most dangerous point of attack player on the other team. But every once in a while, they would get smoked by really quick guard teams. Like the 72 and 10 team lost to the Toronto Raptors when they were an expansion team. And a lot of that was simply because Damon Stoudemire was too quick to handle with some kind of vanilla approach when you're playing these bigger, slightly slower guards. And so Krause says, "Okay, we got to get a guy who we can bring off the bench and spot duty. I mean, that team was just so complete like that because of instances of Randy Brown, Tony Kukoc, all these other people you didn't see. Right. And I think that also gets into I don't know if you've read the excerpts that from Jerry Krause's autobiography that have been coming out from Casey Johnson. And they've been great. I've been really happy that that and with Jack McCallum with Jack McCallum's pieces as compliments to this from people with very different perspectives, obviously. And Krause got into the idea of basically that it was and and he Krause danced around it. Reinsdorf danced around it. The idea that it was financially impractical to bring all these guys back. But what you're getting at is the other element of it, which is something, you know, it's why max the true max players are underpaid, is that you can fit around them with lesser players. That doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be favorites or anything like that, but they don't have to be the alpha and the omega, so you can look for something a little bit different and generally the price point of those players. So, I mean, we saw in the 94-95 season, I believe, that's the one when Jordan came back halfway through, right? Yep. That you know, not having a competent power forward after they lost Horace Grant was was a big problem. But when you have Jordan and Pippen, and even if you have limited means to get everybody else, even if that wasn't an era like now where the players see how one season in that circumstance can change their financial future, or they just want to do it because it'd be fun, I still think even you know Pippen is the is the other one, and we'll talk about him in a little bit. But it is it is easier not to say it's easy. It most certainly is not from a general manager's perspective, to fill in if you have such key pieces just so settled, especially when they're good defenders. Like, that's another wrinkle to this, is that you're Jordan and Pippen as foundational pieces. They're, you know, Jordan's one of the most talented scorers of all time, and Pippen is a wonderful collaborator offensively. To have that, but also have them be tenacious defenders, then that allows you to go in different directions with those support pieces. And then you, if you want to ramp up the defense with somebody like Brady Brown, you can do that. If you want to ramp up the offense playing Kukoc at center, or whatever you want to do, you can do that too. It seemed like they had a lot of time sitting down with Phil Jackson. And one of the things I would have loved to have seen is the discussion about how they deployed the defenders. He used to call them the Doberman, uh, either the Doberman lineup or the, the just the Dobermans, where they would unleash Pippen and Jordan in this like three-quarter court or full-court press. It was really common for them in key games to come out to start a late quarter, say the beginning of the fourth quarter, where there might be some second unit guys on the floor for the opposing team. And just full court press for like the first eight or ten possessions or something and cause havoc and just get two or three steals, turnovers going the other way. I mean, this plugs in 
exactly to what you just said about sort of versatility, diversity, uh, diversifying your scheme and having these guys where even when Jordan was on the bench, sometimes Pippen would sort of lead that. That's the Randy Brown. That you So you could bring Randy Brown in. You could have Pippen in and you have these very athletic, swarming defensive lineups that you could deploy. And you, you never see that anymore. I mean, pressing is almost entirely extinct from high level basketball, at least in the NBA. And yeah, I just would have I would have loved to have seen more geeking out at that level or more insight at that level. But I think to the theme we're talking about, that was a little bit more team centric versus Jordan centric. And that that actually ties in. You and I have never discussed this. I've only said it publicly a couple times with a conversation I had eons ago with a second year Kent Bazemore because he was the, had a rep as a being a tenacious defender. And I asked him at a media day, you know, it was, like, it was just the two of us just ch- chatting about whether a full court press could work in the modern NBA. And he had an interesting answer, which was, yes, but even if they're not on the floor, you would need the stars to buy in because otherwise the other players would resent it a little bit. You know, that it would be yeah. like, it's you're asking so much of them. And if it was just seen as like, that's all you do, that it might be a problem. And so if either Jordan and Pippen are involved in it, then you, you solve some of those potential chemistry problems. And that's one, you know, one of the differences between it being a video game or, you know, like in the abstract versus being human beings is that you do have to think about how all this works. And then the other part with the versatility that is important, not only from the coach's perspective, but from the general managers is making sure that you have players that can that can work in these different contexts then you have to make sure that they're playing in the right combinations at the right times and that yeah, is a, a real challenge and you brought up Ku coach center that makes me think about one of those elements you know like if i were advising coaches in the modern nba which is the center position has become a very different set of responsibilities offensively defensively and the supply is just getting so out of whack And something that I've thought about a lot is this patchwork quilt idea of centers. And the Warriors did this, uh, I would say one of the strongest years with it was 2016-17, partially because they had so little flexibility. So it was Zaza Pachulia and David West, and they went in a couple different directions there. And that was kind of before the ascension of Kevon Looney. And I think that the beauty of that sort of an approach is that there are times when you have you can have like let's say an offensive center who spaces the floor and yeah maybe they suck defensively but if you play them when there isn't a good offensive center on the floor when another team has primary backups then you're not getting burned by it and i think that was something that the bulls having that versatility as long as it's used correctly that's a part of what made them such a successful regular season team when they were healthy and a playoff team i mean yes. if you look if you look at the first kind of huge challenge they had in 1996 with that new group it was facing the Shaq Penny Orlando Magic team coming off a finals appearance they were kind of injury ridden throughout that year but when they were healthy they were really really just phenomenal and incredible on offense and so what do the Bulls do they say Dennis Rodman can you guard Shaq and and what happens I mean Dennis Rodman guards Shaq really 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 well and that's not to say he didn't get help or there weren't other guys on him i mean luke longley was a huge body that could bang against him but i mean i think that only reinforces the point right you bring in a guy like luke longley because he has some functional offensive game within the triangle on offense and then on defense he gives you this giant body rodman gives you a more kind of versatile agile defensive piece that you can deploy 
against different people. Another example is David Robinson. When they would play David Robinson, now they never met him in the playoffs, but you could say, okay, what's a weakness against David Robinson? It's quick, strong guys who can kind of counterbalance his quickness because Robinson didn't have this huge repertoire of post moves. So he's either using power and quickness to get into you on a drive or he's shooting a jumper. You put Rodman underneath him. Rodman was his teammate for two years. Rodman likes to play mind games. And now you use a pain in the butt and he's drawing offensive fouls and he's mucking up David Robinson and all that. So just this cast of characters that you can deploy strategically. I mean, I think all of this combined with the talent level and the coaching and the experience is why you saw some of the greatest teams ever in terms of net rating and playoff success uh, with that group of characters. Yeah, and if memory serves, uh, another part of that, though, is, is wasn't there expansion right around then, too? And I mean, they, they left that out. Um, although, in fairness, I don't think they hammered too much of the dominance outside of being 72 and 10 but right yeah there was a there was massive kind of expansion at the end of the 80s early 90s you had the magic come in you had the heat come in you had all these teams and then they added toronto and vancouver in 1996 to get up to that took us to 29 yeah at that point in time exactly yeah so that was something that you know, inflated your record a touch. But like I said, the Bulls actually lost to the Raptors that year up in Toronto. So (laughs) plenty more to talk about with Ben Taylor. But first, the message from Bet Online. There is no shortage of action going on at our exclusive partner, Bet Online. NASCAR is back and Bet Online has hundreds of games, events and sports that you can still get in on. You can bet on simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC, or even participate in a $10,000 Madden Bracket Challenge, March Madness-style NFL simulation tournament you can enter for free. Make sure that if you sign up for a new account to use the Podcast One promo code, which gives you a sign-up bonus, which is awesome, and tells them that you came from us. And coming up next Sunday, Bet Online has ex-Chicago Bulls Horace Grant and Bill Cartwright and Greg Hodges joining them to discuss the Jordan Bulls documentary on what they're calling After the Dance. Visit the website or use your mobile device and join today to receive your new welcome bonus using the Podcast One promo code and check out all the action at Bet Online, your online wagering solution. Let's let's go to Pippen. I think that not only his place within the last dance, but his place within basketball history is is just so fascinating. And this again, it's it's in the area where you know it far better than I. And Pippen, I mean, you you have to combine a lot of things. I mean, a, a extremely unusual skill set, especially for his era. In that he got this very small window where he was the best player on the Bulls night in and night out. I mean, there were certainly nights that he was the best player, you know, even when Jordan was on the team. But do you think that he, you know, like being the greatest number two of all time, which is generally kind of like the rep, and we're not counting the Curry KD years, that was too short a period of time. Uh, do you think that does a disservice to Pippen, con- considering what he could have been in another circumstance? I do. Um, David Halberstrom had an anecdote in playing for keeps about how when they worked out Pippen as a rookie, he broke a couple of Jordan's athleticism records, like the team vertical leap. And I think the other one was like a shuttle run, you know, where you have to laterally go back and forth from the baseline to the free, uh, three point line or something like that, or foul line. Uh, and just the idea that he was this unbelievable athlete who kind of his biggest weakness as a player at a very high level was that he was never a dominant grade A all-time level scorer. He was at least a rung or two down. But otherwise, 
I mean, just an incredible basketball player who this idea historically of him being second banana, second fiddle, all these archetypes that come out of that. I think they're okay, but I think they do us a small disservice in just how we think about team construction, right? And so the blueprint from that period with Jordan not only was you want to play like Mike and you want to, you know, shoot fadeaway jumpers and be a six five dynamic athlete and all the guys that came after that were hopefully the heir apparent. I think the other thing was, okay, you need a big time dominant scorer who can hit all these big shots. And then you need kind of a secondary guy who can do these other things that I maybe I don't even know what they are. We won't even talk about them. But maybe he scores like 20 points a game and has like six assists and you want him to rebound. And then after that, I don't know, maybe you need a third guy or some role players. And I think that's the thing that I think um, that sort of idea created the greatest disservice from, if if you follow what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I get that. And I think what happens sometimes and the triangle actually I mean they, this could have been used to to great service within it is that different schemes don't necessarily require the greatest like athleticism though it always helps but being able to make like quick decisions and being able to to react whether it's on ball or off ball to like what is going on and I think that there was this element from what I understand and correct me if I'm wrong of course that you know players like Pippen and and Kerr and and the bigs to an extent, Kukoc is a great example of this, like appreciating that they had specific things that made sense within what they were doing, as well as just like the accompanying skills. And I think Pippen is the archetype of that because he was able to do the basic things, you know, if you wanted those like checkboxes, but then he did so much more and that's what helped them elevate. And the analog that I would make is there are so many teams that tried to replicate what the Warriors did with Draymond at center. And, oh, we're playing a small guy at the five so we can space the four and all that without realizing the reason why those Warriors lineups worked is because they could still defend, because they had a capable rim protector who was just shorter and could shoot some threes. The amount of threes he could make varied depending on the year. But <laughs> the but that, you know, it's it's the idea of missing missing the forest for the trees. You know, like the the getting the general idea of why it worked, but not realizing that some of the specific talent was essential for making it viable. Okay. I'm glad we've landed here. This is awesome. The the additional piece of context that I should have mentioned is before Jordan ascended to this sort of mythical status as a player and before the Bulls started sweeping in championships, there was a very strong reputation and belief that you couldn't win with a guy scoring that much. I know. Just sit at home and take it in for a second. Did, did you know about this, Danny? This sort of idea that Jordan was a ball hog. He shot too much. Yeah, absolutely. No good team would win with anyone scoring that much. Because nobody had. Yeah, exactly. So you have this idea, and I love that you landed on Golden State. I think it's pretty pretty uh, sort of repeatable as a pattern. You go back all the way to the 1960s. In the 1960s, what was the way to – how do you win at basketball? You have a big man, and he's in the pivot, and he's dominant, and he's, he's Bill Russell, and he's defense and passing, and you have to be unselfish, and that's how you win. Even when Wilt won his two championships, the constant talk was, well, you have to emulate Russell. You can't shoot and score all the time. You have to emulate Russell. Then, okay, the 70s, basketball kind of struggles, and there's all sorts of crazy things happening. We'll gloss over the 70s just for the, for the point of this 
uh, exercise. You get to the 80s, right? And it's the same thing. What are the teams that are winning? It's the Celtics. They're all balanced and you need players. Okay, so Larry Bird, he scores 25 points a game, but not 35. He can dominate a game with his passing and his rebounding and all these other things. And you need balance. My dad grew up almost fetishizing the number of players that were in double figures because that was what they used to say. Five guys in double figures, six guys in double figures, seven guys in double figures. So Magic and the Lakers, he wasn't a scorer either. So each era kind of contains the established blueprint that then the copycat league tries to go to. And when you get to the 90s with the Bulls, that was the prevailing idea. But of course, it's it's just an illusion, right? I mean, what was the first team to win a championship after Jordan retired? It was the Twin Tower Spurs, basically, with Robinson and Tim Duncan. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that... The other kind of the to me the funniest part of this from a team building perspective is that there are always general managers and some of it's probably fueled by owners who who just watch you know watching the playoffs when their team isn't in it and they say get something like that is every piece of it is important but one of the most important ones is working within the strengths and weaknesses of your best players and using that as like a, a guiding star rather than you know something else and it, it's true and mimic really, m- rather rather than mimicking something else, yes right? exactly yeah so. Yeah. A Luka, a Luka Doncic-led team is going to look dramatically different in form and function than a LeBron James-led team because those guys, you know, there are certain similarities, but there are also some predominant differences in what you need. And, and I mean, this, there also is this, this really interesting idea that I've been, I've been kind of thinking about for the last couple of years, which is, sure, the best of the best, if you can be top five or top three or whatever on both ends of the floor, you're going to, you're going to, that, that's fine. Then you're going to be a contender for a championship. You're probably going to have a good shot of winning. But the second, the next tier down is being really good on one end and being at bare minimum, not terrible on the other end, but ideally being pretty good. And then maybe you can ramp it up to very good and understanding that some of that is going to be dictated by personnel. You know, if it's a team led by Tim Duncan, you might be might might be more natural to shade and try to be elite on one end and pretty good on the other end. But if it's Luca or if it's Zion Williamson or something else, maybe you go the other direction. And it's obviously everybody you want to build a team that's all Hall of Famers and all All Stars. You you can make you can make that sort of thing work. You can out talent everybody. I mean, that's to an extent what the sixteen, seventeen, seventeen, eighteen Warriors did. But that is much, much harder than saying, this is what we can do. These are our best players. We have limited resources around them. How are we going to make this work? Yeah, that's a great point. And I I think, in a way, love a lot of the last five, six, seven years, even though the Warriors briefly uh, felt like they have a, had a cheat code. But there was a period in time where these blueprints that we've been alluding to were treated as just law. They are just like, like an axiomatic truth of the universe where yes, Tim, Tim Duncan and Robinson won that championship in 1999. And I want to come back to 1999 because they ended the, the series on it in one of my sort of least favorite segments. Um, but what happened next was order restored itself because Shaq and Kobe came back and notice again the the this is where I was saying there's a disservice. Shaq is the alpha. Kobe is sort of the second banana kind of second option, whatever language you want to use to describe that. You put the role players around them and then they win the next three championships because that's the blueprint. That's the truth of the universe. And there were a number of years there where you were told the 1999 Spurs just did not count. 
They they were an asterisk, not just because of the lockout, right, but because the lockout made that absurd result happen. And then, of course, they kept winning, and other teams kept winning, and then the 08 Celtics were assembled. And then this last, like, 15 or 16 years of the league has really reemphasized how almost anomalous the 90s were, or this just this idea that you were going to have the exact same type of blueprint built around a score and a second banana as the only way to carry you home was a very fleeting idea. And so I've wondered about this myself. The language we use now, go back to like the 2001 Lakers. It's not that Kobe's the second option. It's not even that Shaq is the second option. It's that Kobe went from one level of player in 2000 to another in 2001. And the Warriors have the same thing with Durant and Curry. Like you don't need to have these bizarre hierarchical pecking yeah. orders. Well, and, and you could also draw the parallel with Pippen getting a lot better and the, and the Pistons getting worse. And so that allowed them to get over the bad boys. It wasn't like force of will or anything. It was that they got better talent wise. Yes. Well, the, the force of will thing um, has always cracked me up because in a way, in a way you're, you're, aren't you saying it's a weakness? You're like, I don't know if I would be very good unless I, someone can get under my skin, which I think is ridiculous. I think Jordan didn't need anyone to get under his skin. Um, I mean, we, he, could so, just, he could just invent it like Bradford Smith. Yeah, but he's, that's what I'm saying. That's yeah. such a bizarre thing to brag about. Like, I don't know. If I didn't invent this thing in my mind, I wouldn't be very good. I could just, but I could also do it on command. Like well, that's so. So th- I brought this up in a, a roundtable for the athletic, and I, this happens a lot in various various things where somebody is successful, and right. they attribute a larger portion of their success than it should be to the elements that they had more control over. So Ooh, yes, for Jordan, that's you know he did have this incredible mental fortitude and the ability to, you know, take slights and get motivation, everything else like that. And I, I think back to what Bob what Bob Knight said about Jordan in eighty four. So this is even pre, you know, like him becoming you know, he was great in college, but before he became the supernova and the pros, was he has all this great mental stuff, but he's also like one of the best athletes we've ever seen and that he he had all these it was one of the most skilled and all stuff. It's like, yeah, that's a much larger portion of the reason you were successful than that you were that you had this mental fortitude. Like, I mean, you could take Jordan's mentality and put it in an inferior athlete, and they would probably move to further than they were, but they wouldn't get to be a star because th- that you can't just do that. I couldn't if I my, you know if you put put Jordan's mentality into me, I wouldn't be a good NBA player. There's just not enough to work with there. And so, in whether it's in business or it's in politics or it's in sports. It, it's more comfortable to attribute your success to the things that you can control and that you think about the most. And the other big one, and I'm not saying this is true with Jordan because sports is more of a meritocracy than many other things, is luck. A lot of times somebody starts a first business and does really well. They start something else, do try to do things exactly the same, and it fails. And one of the reasons why is because there was something they didn't realize that isn't parallel. And the funniest thing is a lot of times the thing that somebody does second and fails, not a lot of times, but sometimes, it's owning a sports team. It's like, oh, when you try to own a sports team and you try to run it the same way you ran your business, it's going to fail because it's a completely different thing. I have been called by some folks as a Jordan hater even, or just this perception of trying to like ruin kind of, right? <laughs> and I think I think the irony in that is, again, by the way, I was uh, my probably the peak of my fandom was as, as a fanatic of a particular team was the 96 to 98 period. But 
The other irony to me there, which even plugs back in at a meta level to what we've been talking about with Michael himself, is that just because you want to like narratives are fantastic, but just you want to just because you want to course correct a narrative or keep in mind facts or reality or something like that, it, it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy the thing or that there isn't um, sort of truth in the idea that Michael Jordan ascended to be a great player and the Bulls ascended to do all this and all that. But these going the extra level and then to your point, you know, you see this all the time in business adding this sort of, well, you know what the one thing was? It was that I had this mind control game that no one else had. And that's the reason. It's not that I had a growth spurt and I was six six. It's not my giant hands. It's not that my teammates got better. It's not that Jerry Krause did this. It was that I started playing mind games with myself uh, as the sole reason. And by the way, there's a really interesting set of studies on this in the behavioral world, um, some of them actually out of Berkeley, where they look at people, they try to engineer situations where people are more successful. And sometimes they set it up so people are successful, and sometimes they set up these experiments where people fail. And then the big takeaway that keeps coming out of it seems to be that the people who are successful credit that success or are much more likely to credit that success to something innate in them that they did, right? Yeah. That, right. And then the people who failed are much more likely to identify the external factors that made, you know, well, it was hard because this happened and that happened and that's maybe why we didn't do it. It just seems to be uh, and, and what's ba- so, what's baked so, into human nature. What's so funny is I go too far the other way personally like if if there's a failure i try to look at i i it takes work for me to to do the same thing that i do as an analyst and look at all of the other things and when something works i i think it was more on luck and circumstance than (laughs) than anything innate that i did i think yeah we don't need to get sidetracked into the the psyche of this but i think the key word there is work right it we're wired to do it the other way we're wired to do it the way we've been talking about with yeah. Michael in the last dance yeah. you actually have to put in a heck of a lot of reflection and cognitive work to to get to the point where every time there's a mistake uh, go through all of the things that you did that are related to that and then when you have success be like well, well here, i mean clearly uh, luck I'll, I'll give one we'll do one one piece of my psychosis that just just to have it in here um so i i don't pl- i never play part of the reason i never play play video games like o- online is because of the things that i do and so like so for example let's say i'm playing fifa and i don't score a goal when I think I, you know, it was a good opportunity. I then go into the replay and watch it and try <laughs> to figure out what, like, should I have made a different pass? Should I have done something else? I actually used to do a mental version of this when I played soccer before, something you and I discussed on your podcast. And that idea of, like, I mean, because Edison talks about this a lot of different people, it's like, I consider failure such a great learning opportunity, but it's like the idea yeah. of trying to trying to like really dwell in the failure. Like I don't, I only can do it in certain pockets, and I know like athletes do that a lot too. I mean, you can you can get different different examples. I, I, there are some good ones with LeBron and stuff, but it's it's so interesting how we all process everything that's around us. Yeah, I love that you are doing film study on your on your video game play. Um, let's go back to. 1999, yes. if we can, because the documentary ends with this sort of lingering idea that the Bulls could have come back and won a seventh title, and we can talk about the reality of that in a second. But it also kind of stops with this, well, it's management's fault. 
Everything, it wasn't us. We would have done it. It wasn't me. It was management's fault. And I think they left out a huge number of factors, even seeing Michael himself totally incredulous to what Jerry Reinsdorf presented as the reason for why the team didn't come back. Um, I thought left out a lot of the context of what was happening at that point in time. So Jordan had a one year contract. He was signing one year deals that at that point were like 30, they were over $30 million a season, which is like the equivalent of like a $70 million contract today or something. There was no ceiling on a player's contract. Well, there was a ceiling, but what happened was you were, there was grandfathered in that you could get, and this is still in the CBA, you could get a, a, a like a 5% raise on your previous contract. So he was just able to basically get, he could get those ungodly amounts of money because of the way the system worked. But there, there was a limit, but the limit was way higher func- as a proportion of the cap than it is now. I'm trying hmm. to remember when that match I don't know. Was- I, don't, I don't think that kicked in yet. I think it kicked in right around then. I think it was like 97, but I could check that. Oh, I see what you're saying. So, the, so still, so, when, I, so Jordan when I'm saying— could make, Jordan could make ungodly amounts of money, but not everybody else could. Okay, right. But so, so the point is here, whatever the technicalities were, sure. he, had, he had an enormous contract. So when you're coming back for the seventh title team and he would be 36, uh, already had, and again, this gets back to just how bizarre some of these uh, mind-reading narratives are, he already was fatigued. He was fatigued in 1993 so much that he had to walk away. I, you know, He was going to do it anyway, um, in theory, regardless of the tragedy that happened with his dad. And then in 1998, he's fatigued again. He's 35 years old. He's going to be 36. It's not that you wouldn't want to run it back or have Michael Jordan on your team, but the first thing I always wondered at that point in time was, were you just going to ask him to take like a giant pay cut so you could pay the other players? Or was it assumed that Michael was going to come back for his $35 million? I mean, I think it was assumed that he would come back for his $35 million, And then the, to, to be the biggest domino with all of that is Pippen. And Jordan asserted that Scotty would have taken a one-year contract, but he had made a lot less in his career than many, many other players and wanted the security. And you could make an argument that the, that the Bulls should have just, you know, that you could, it, it'll end up being a bad contract, but it banners fly forever or even just near banners to get that opportunity. But that is a lot easier said than done. And that's why my, my general stance is it's somewhat between the two because uh, Nate brought this up. We did dunk on the Bulls had the capacity conceptually to bring everyone back. They had sufficient bird rights. They could have they could have done it. A lot of it would have been on impractical contracts, and it would have been difficult to replace those who left. And some of them could have left to their own volition, though it would have been difficult. So it was to an extent a choice, but I also don't think the hypothetical that Michael Jordan proposed at the end of the documentary is true either. Like I don't think that everybody would have taken that. And so it's it's I like like many cases in in complicated relationships the answer is between the extremes that are that are espoused. Okay, but the Pippin thing, which is obviously the next giant domino, he needed for financial security to take a long term deal. Yes, he wasn't. Okay. Gonna, I don't think he was going to take a one year contract. Yeah, but they left out an enormous enormous piece of information. Pippin has back surgery a month after the finals. Yeah. There was even concern now it's mild concern, but people were saying like what how is this going to affect his career going forward? Will he be able to continue playing? Will he play at a high level? And as a well, it didn't stop the Rockets, but anyway. 
<laughs> well, as a lover and and sort of study of Scottie Pippen, he was never the same after that. His movement patterns and his athleticism that really, really helped him as like a very long six seven six eight kind of guy were never quite the same. And so I just I, I have to tell you, Danny, living through it, I never, ever, ever thought it was unreasonable that they broke up the team. And in fact, it was the opposite. It was the fact that they got to go back in 98 after all of the sort of posturing in 97 that they weren't going to come back that felt more like a gift than the other way around. Because 1999, Scottie Pippen, having this kind of back surgery, being at that age and having that financial situation, it's just basically impossible to ask him to take a one-year deal. And then so you're committing to a long-year deal. You have all the additional financial things that would come with that, plus potentially shorthanding, you know, handicapping the team going forward with that contract where then they're in limbo if Michael retires and you have Scotty on a long-term deal. And as all this is going on, there's a lockout. Yeah. <laughs> so, it just it it was as someone who lived through it very closely, it did feel I guess the word I'll use is almost disingenuous how hard they kind of ended the documentary with like, I don't know why we didn't come back for a seventh championship. <laughs> it's like it never felt like that to me. Since you haven't listened to the Dunk Dunk yet, I could ask you a couple of questions that I asked that I asked Nate, and one of them was Let's say the Bulls do bring the band back together and they make it all the way to the finals and they lose to that 99 Spurs. Is their legacy like Jordan, however you want to define it, I'm just going to make it an umbrella term of legacy. Is it diminished by six and one compared to six and oh? For some people, I think I, I that's never been uh, like a, a logically coherent kind of thing. I don't think it would have been that big of a deal. Um, I, I, so my, my part in this, and I think you might agree with it, is that it would have been a bigger deal for the Spurs than it would have been for the Bulls. Let's to say, be able to, to, have to, be, take, to, have beaten, to have beaten the Jordan Bulls instead yes. of... Yes. Yeah, Seth Partnow was tweeting about this right before we recorded today, and I had the exact same thought as him. You are better off from a legacy standpoint, the way our memories work and the way we kind of um, have these biases toward recent things that happen in our memory your legacy is way better off to punctuate with the championship bill russell in 1969 jordan in 1998 i talk about this sometimes with players who uh are robbed short of injury or tragically pass away by the way good dunked on episode you and nate did about that recently right where the legacy of what you saw before it went away lingers in your mind way stronger then if you see someone fade and get old and struggle and go through the sort of Moses Malone career arc of like hanging on for eight extra years. And I think the Bulls benefited tremendously from leaving on a high note. Here's the analogy that I use. Arrested Development before it was revived. That a, a, sh a show ending too early is better for its legacy than it ending too late. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, yeah th and it's because you get you you the, it's the mystery box idea it's like it, it could be anything and so you get excited about the possibility and there are all sorts of reasons why something could exceed or could not live up to expectations and th this gets into you know something that that i talk about a lot and it's funny people every once in a while get mad at me for it but it's like so when nate and i are doing over unders a lot of times if i'm unsure i pick the under because my theory is there are a lot more reasons why a season can go wrong than it can go right because injuries and everything else like that's more common injuries or ineffectiveness or you know maybe there's some sort of chemistry issue that is more common at least anecdotally in my caveman brain than <laughs> 
than a player completely defying expectations and propelling. And that absolutely does happen. I'm not saying it's, you know, like 100 to 0. But if it's like a 60-40 or a 75-25 proposition, then I think it's worth leaning on in, in those circumstances where you're really unsure. And we, partially because I think it's kind of a good thing, just as being, you know, a lot of us are optimistic, that we don't we don't consider it that way when it's something that never was or that could have been more. Speaking of caveman brain, can I just quickly interject how much of a conspiracy theory it is that uh, a pizza shop poisoned Michael Jordan the night before the the flu poisoning game? Like, that is not an easy thing. First of all, there's no evidence for it. But secondly, I don't think that's an easy thing to pull off. Like, we're going to poison someone or deliberately include some serious, serious shady stuff. How would they have known for sure that it was to Michael Jordan? Like, I mean, I would assume that Tim Tim Grover and the other people that were involved in the room wouldn't have made it so super obvious that maybe they could have inferred that it like it was the Bulls Hotel or something like that. And if it was a single pizza, you wouldn't think, oh, well, that's definitely going to the Bulls or something. It It, it is just extremely bizarre. I mean, I don't think the average person even realizes all the sort of different types of food poisoning and that a lot of food poisoning oh, on set. Another got- thing with this. I, I, maybe this is a just like a difference in life experience. Would a hotel just let five people go up to somebody's room to deliver a pizza? I guess maybe if they didn't have the, like firm security or something like that. That was something yeah, else ba- that surprised me. Back in the day, I think that could yeah. happen. Um, I could see that happening. But there's just all different ways that you can get onset of food poisoning. And in fact, of the common ones, from my understanding over the years, there's really only sort of one common type of bacteria that gives you that immediate onsetting. I don't think it's particularly likely that it happened with the cooking of a pizza. That's not usually the foods associated with it. So just out of the gate, we all do this. We all think, oh, the last thing I ate is the thing that made me sick. But it's usually not. It's usually a couple things before that. Right, right. And then in this case, the thing that really gets me is just like, how on earth, like, did they use to just give him the exact did they have some of the bacteria lying around and they're like we're going to use this when we need to really stick it to a customer but hopefully it's not an old person who gets severely ill and dies like it's just if you really think about it it's out there kind of conspiracy theory stuff for me so i just wanted to quickly get that out yeah uh you'll hear nate and i do do a riff on that as well especially when you consider how hot pizza cooks that it will be really hard to right. successfully successfully administer that even if you knew all the other pieces of information yeah it's then that was what i was getting at um about what if this turns into canon i don't think that it becomes the pizza game or anything like that i think it's still the flu game and it is a possible theory but i don't think it is definitive or anything like that at least at this point and that i think is maybe the most interesting part of of the last dance as it persists is that it is it definitely adds an interpretation it adds a point of view it adds some new film it adds con- context and i i hope that people and it can't be a collective because that's not the way this works realize that and that it's it it adds to the conversation and it's not the conversation in and of itself and that's why i think some of the criticisms are well founded is that it can't be that because of how it was made and i don't have a problem with it i don't have a problem with that as long as nobody claims it to be that way and says like this is definitively proven because it was in the last dance 
then it's just, okay, this is another thing that we have about the Jordan Bulls. And Jordan's perspective on all this is valuable. Like, Jordan thinking this, Jordan thinking that is is a good piece of context that we probably wouldn't have gotten if it were told a different way. Yeah, completely agree. And I think we've learned in the age of social media that there's no stopping someone who's going to erroneously use something for an argument. So given that people are going to do that anyway, would I rather have something that's highly entertaining and nostalgic and does add, you know, another kind of subjective narrative component, even hearing a lot of what Phil Jackson said, even though I've known it over the years, just getting a little extra color, uh, especially the stuff around Dennis and the the film film coming out of Dennis in practice. I don't think I trying to think of if I had seen any of that ever before. I mean, that was really nice to kind of put in a single place for people to reference. So and what else did you ask Nate anything else? I'm kind of curious now because yes. I haven't. Uh, this is another one. So, and I guess the fans of you, you've added a little bit of color there. I asked how he felt about us not having a few extra years of Jordan, largely by what I would call choice. You know, like maybe he, maybe he still cuts his hand, or and well, that that's a little bit of a conversation. But like you know, taking a year and a half off to go play baseball and to to un, to unwind and all that because. I know that in terms of those who can, who want to talk about the greatest career conversations or anything like that, you know, missing time is a very important thing, whether it's due to injury or anything like that. But Jordan's, like, to me, it's different than Barry Sanders or some of the other things, partially because he came back, partially because he came back so soon. Like, how do you, how do you feel about that of a player just willingly walking away at the peak of his powers and then coming back? I think that is the thing that provides the most narrative power of everything we've discussed. Because if you look at sort of the history, and I, I, I shouldn't say you, I mean, I do this extensively, maybe more than anyone. Look at the teams, look at the variability in the series, the luck, the quality of teams, the players, the aging curves. The idea that he was going to win eight championships in a row is so unlikely that we might as well run other incredibly unlikely scenarios in our head about other players, right? Like if Magic didn't retire from HIV, he would have seven MVPs or something like that. Uh, Where do you stop at three? So maybe not seven, but you see where I'm going, I hope, Mm -hmm. right? It's like I always thought that was the biggest myth, the idea that you would just pencil in. It's almost like the break we talked about ending on a high note and 6-0 and and all this stuff. But the break even added more than normal because people go, oh, yeah, those Rockets championships, they don't – I don't know if they really count. And it's like – it's not just the Rockets. They would have had to play the Knicks again, okay? Uh, coming back at later points, if they came back in like 99, they probably would have had to play the Pacers again. Every time you play a team – Additionally, they get a little bit more information on you. You're aging in potentially the wrong direction. And, and um, there's even just the random chance variance, you know, that, that a player exactly. a player picks up an injury or any number of other things happen. Or you, you, you're, you're signing for that year just doesn't mesh with the team, and so it doesn't work out. Like, it, yeah, it's true that the margins for error are, are much larger when you have Michael Jordan, but they aren't infinite. Exactly. And so the more sort of cracks you have at it, the more likely you are, even if you're batting, you know, 80 percent, the more likely you are to start missing some. Then you add in the team components where, you know, Horace Grant leaves uh, the, the, you know, these kind of like roster reshufflings, what other teams, the moves other teams are making in response. I, I just think it is extremely unlikely to put it lightly that they win eight in a row. And yet I think that is the thing that emboldens the narrative the most so for me it was um 
it was understandable. It was kind of a double whammy, loving magic, and then seeing him go out two years before. But I, Danny, I just recently re- rewatched some of the 1995 NBA playoffs, and even though the ratings were down at that point, like the oh my god, Shaq, Hakeem, uh, David Robinson, Reggie Miller, the Knicks, uh, it was still awesome stuff. And I think um, if anything, kind of would have tainted the perfect story that we have. So no, I, I've I've never felt too robbed by it as a fan but obviously when the rigid analytical side of me goes to do career rankings i do have to remind people that like I, you can't just gift the guy multiple seasons right i mean it's it and it was his choice so it's it doesn't count in his career and in some ways i feel less guilty about not giving him credit for that than somebody who was like injured who wanted to play and didn't like he he took himself out of that yeah anything else you want to discuss i'm sure you and i could go on for an eternity on this but uh I, I, anything else that you feel is pressing for this? And I know you're going to do probably do a pot on this as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, now you got me going. So um, I think it's a good place to to stop. I'm glad we I'm glad we got to see it and re-experience it. And what I really love is apparently everyone I know, myself included, like they're finally able to get their significant other or their wives to watch. My wife watched all 10 episodes which was the most I've been able to get her to engage in basketball in an extremely long time. So that was really fun. Yeah, it, it's it's been great. And um, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if we talk about it again in the future, whether it's on your podcast or mine. But it's just I'm happy that it's out there and that we got this shared experience at a time that – we can't we can't get all the shared experiences that we want with so many things being different but having a you know having something that we're all watching and talking about at the same time was it was really exciting and i was i hadn't i hadn't realized how much i missed it until after the first sunday and then went oh great we get four more yeah. days and i was really really juiced up about it yeah um actually my request or my itching desire now is for more I want well, yeah, so, one on more players. Well, and like just there's so many there's so many talented storytellers. Just just put whoever like Michael Lee said David Aldridge, but I mean there are so many people just put him in a room and have him tell stories and then we'll figure out a way to put it on TV. I mean, I think back so I don't know if you've watched it at all. Uh, there's this really interesting show uh, Mike Judge who has done so many other things in his career, Silicon Valley office space among them. He did a he did a show. It was on one of the premium cable networks called Tales from the Tour Bus. And so the way they squared that circle with him was they animated the stories. So they had people who were in the entourage or sometimes the musician themselves tell story, crazy stories of their life. And then they animated it. But with with sports, especially basketball, you don't have to animate it. We have footage of like games right. and stuff like that. And so, yeah, just like p- person X's story time, whether it's – and you could either be a different person every week or it could be the same person every week. Like it would be – it would be so – thrilling and it would it would add to everything and maybe there maybe there are certain things that wouldn't end up being told in that and there's always going to be the pr people and the manufacturing of images and stuff but it'd just be nice to have more out there yeah i'm going to try to do my part going forward and uh, at some point dip back into some historical videoing but this documentary level stuff where you include the players themselves and the coaches and you get all this additional sort of subjective perspective uh, even if you don't go hardcore analytical just the storytelling and the nostalgia is awesome and really i'm, I'm going to be a little disappointed if there's just sort of this by itself and no other players or teams get 
this level of treatment for the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah, especially when this did so well at the ratings. I mean, hopefully it was hopefully it was motivation to keep pushing in this direction. Right. Yep, exactly. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Pleasure as always. Thanks for uh, having me and listening to my musings on 90s nostalgia. Thanks again to Ben Taylor for taking time to come on. You can check out his great work. It's under the Thinking Basketball heading. He has great YouTube videos. He does a Patreon, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. And also he's doing fantastic work as a part frequently of the COVID Daily News podcast along with uh, my frequent podcast partner, Nate Duncan. So you can check that out as well. Of course, follow Ben on Twitter at LG90, or sorry, 35, E-L-G-E-E, and then the number three, the number five. Love having him on. And I had a pretty good idea that I wanted to do some last dance stuff for Real GM Radio and knew that Ben was the first person I want to talk to. No guarantee that he will be the last. I am still figuring out exactly where I want to go. We're in this weird area where we might be getting NBA news at some point, so I don't know exactly how this is going to shake out, but I have a few irons in the fire, and we will see where those go from here. If you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe and download every episode that is particularly great for this show because it doesn't come out on a specific day of the week. This is unusually early, but it can be. And telling other people about it, single episode or the whole thing, is really appreciated. And then leaving a rating, leaving a review. It's a great way to help other people find the show. It can move us up in the rankings on whatever podcast player we're using. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts, but if you subscribe using something else, different app, Spotify, whatever you want to do, appreciate it there too. Or you can leave one multiple places if you really want to. But the single most important thing for this show and any other that has them to support us is to check out our sponsors. Bet online, use the podcast one promo code for a special sign up bonus when you create a new account. And as I said, Real Jam Radio is going to keep going strong. At some point we will have guidance on how exactly this is working out, but I have no shortage of guests. I have no shortage of things to discuss. And it's largely the same on Dunked On. Uh, Nate and I are actually going down to a couple days a week now. We released a podcast on our thoughts on The Last Dance. That came out on Sunday night, Monday morning. And then we will still be doing two to three times a week on various different topics. We're kind of treating this as our as our off season of sorts because there's so little going on and we will be back to to full speed whenever it is appropriate but you'll be getting the same amount of dunked on either way if you have any feedback on this show or really anything i do good bad or indifferent daniel nba at gmail.com is the way to get that to me if you take the time to write it i will take the time to read it i try to respond but i don't make any promises there and you can also check out i i did a piece I've done a lot of collaborative work recently, did a piece with Chris Kirshner for the Athletic Atlanta on the Hawks, then doing a, a Q&A with Mike uh, Verkunov for New York about the Knicks, and then I have my own pieces coming out as well, working on some big stuff that is in the works but not all the way done as well too, so that'll be that'll be fun when I start rolling on all that. Just, you know, you know me, you know I'm always working on stuff, and that's very, very much true right now. So... Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.